The following audio is from Downtown Church, a kingdom-focused, gospel-centered, multi-ethnic, multi-class ministry in Memphis, Tennessee. For more information, please visit downtownchurch.com. Today's scripture is taken from 1 Corinthians 15th chapter, verses 1 through 34. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, As to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact... Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the first fruits. Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, 
when he delivers the kingdom of God, the kingdom to God, the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him. That God may be all in all. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right and do not go on sinning for some have no knowledge of God I say this to your shame this is the word of God pray with me father we pray this morning that your spirit would be poured out that we might see Jesus and him only That we might have an encounter with you, Lord Jesus, the risen Lord. The one who is not dead, but is very much alive. Have your way in this place. We pray in your name. Amen. This morning we had a, our first service on the lawn of the National Civil Rights Museum and uh, what a great service it was. And then after service we did a prayer march from the National Civil Rights Museum to um, the front steps here of Claiborne Temple. And I have to say it had a huge impact on me. Uh, it was really a surprising impact. I was not prepared for the impact because the whole time that we were walking and praying, all I could think about all I could think about were my brothers and sisters not too long ago walking the same streets and being met with the National Guard and hearing the dogs barking and seeing the fire hoses prepared, the hate in the eyes of those that line the streets. Thought a lot about Dr. King this week and his message in anticipation of being on the lawn of the National Civil Rights Museum. And I'm so 
grateful that we are allowed to have our Easter service there, one of our services now there, because it's very appropriate. You see, Dr. King's life in so many ways demonstrated and illustrated the power of the resurrection of Jesus, the power of a resurrected life. You see, Dr. King was not just fed up with oppression, he was eaten up with hope. It was not bitterness and anger. It was not self-righteousness that drove him. And, and, and that's what angered so many, even in his own camp during the time. They wanted him to be angry. They wanted him to resort to other tactics. And yet he stuck to love and nonviolence. And I'm telling you this morning that that has much to do with the gospel because the resurrection life of Jesus is a life of love and self-sacrifice. It's a life centered on God and another. And you see, that's where King was coming from. For he said in his own words, I have been to the mountaintop and I have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He, it was this vision of hope for the future. It was this vision that was squarely rooted in God and God's promises that drove him to live this peaceful life being laid down, even when he had a premonition of his death, and even though he felt that his life was going to be cut short, he did not change his tactics. Even when the fire hoses were turned on, even when the dogs were unleashed, even when the hate and the anger continued to spew, he did not change his tactics. Why? Because of this vision. Because of a reality of another world. And dear friends, that is the resurrection of Jesus. And that is what Paul is calling the believers in Corinth to. You see, he is arguing for the literal, physical, objective resurrection of Jesus Christ as the power to free us from living a self-consumed life. This was the life of the believers, per se, in Corinth. They were eaten up with sexual desire, and sex was uh, running amok, if you will. They were using sex any way they so choose. It got so bad that there were rumors that there was a man in the church who was sleeping with his own mother, his own stepmother, maybe, his wife's, his father's wife. They were coming to the Lord's Supper, and they were using it as a gluttonous feast. They would eat so much that, that some people wouldn't even get to eat. And they were drinking so much that it became this drunken party. And so Paul writes, and he addresses the, the reality that the believers were not using the resources that God gave them for the good of those around them, but they were spending it all on themselves. Marriages were being ripped apart by divorce. Believers were taking believers to court. And as you read through the book of Corinthians, you, you've got to say, man, thank you God that we have advanced so much beyond that. <laughs> I, I, I'm amused by the arguments of how we are progressing, how, how sexual sin is, is referred to as progression. Dear friends, it's regression. Solomon said there's nothing new under the sun and there's not anything new under the sun. Every generation redefines God's standards for sex and money and power and beauty. There's nothing new under the sun. 
And yet, what does Paul do? How does he end his letter? What is his argument to get the church, to get the believers in Corinth to come out of themselves and stop living for themselves? Because that's what uh, uh, an immoral life is. It's saying, life is all about me and I'm going to satisfy me. So what is the power to bring us out of that to live for God and another? That's the resurrected life. It is the literal, physical, tangible resurrection of Jesus. And they were denying it. They weren't believing it. It wasn't a living reality. That's why in um, verse 12b, he says, How can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? They were denying the literal, physical resurrection of the dead. And Paul is arguing for it. He said, you have to believe in the literal resurrection of the dead to be a Christian. That is the gospel that I brought to you that you're abandoning. And when you believe this life, you are going to live a life very differently than you're living right now. So church... We have to look at our lives and say, Christ lived, died, and rose to give us so much more than what we're living for right now. Let's look at this resurrection and look at really three distinct fruits of the resurrection. First of all, Jesus' resurrection exposes the weakness in all other messages. The message of our day that's so advanced and so... Not really intelligent. Is this. Just do what makes you happy. I mean, that's what, that's just be true to yourself. Just follow your heart. Do what makes your, your happy, do what makes you happy as long as you're not hurting anybody else. That is the religion of our day, is it not? It's on every talk show. It's on, in every article. Just do what makes you happy. And oh, don't listen to those people that want to suppress your freedom. That's the message of the day. But what's wrong with this message? Is it that God is an ogre and God is a killjoy and He doesn't want us to experience real fulfillment? No! God is the one who created fulfillment. God is the one who created life and joy and abundance and fullness and wholeness and health. He's the one that created it. It's His idea. It all traces back to Him because in the beginning God... No, He doesn't want to steal our joy. He doesn't want us, however, to choose a second-rate joy. A second-rate happiness. Because happiness to us in our day, the religion of happiness today, is simply governing your circumstances in a way that makes you happy. And really, it's such a weak, it's, it's really so easy to throw down and cast down and show the resurrection to be a superior argument and a superior hope and a superior happiness, if you will. For you see, all you've got to realize is that this world doesn't work out and this life doesn't work out most of the time. If you haven't figured that out yet, you haven't lived long enough. If you haven't figured out that life doesn't work out, then just wait. Paul understood this. I mean, he lived, this is being written in the 50s, like 55, 56, somewhere in there, like A.D. 55, 56. Life was just tough. I mean, it's it's our Western wealth that allows us to have this religion of happiness. You throw that out in the year 55 A.D., they would have laughed at you. Are you kidding me? There's no Tempur-Pedic beds, no sleep-right beds, there's no air conditioning, there's no paved roads, there very few people even had a horse. I mean, 
There are no hospitals. There's no medicine. There's no no 911. There's no. I mean, it is tough. Life is tough. Happiness, really. And you see, even Paul wasn't looking for this message of the resurrected Christ. He was persecuting it. He was the last one, really, to be a proponent for the resurrection of Jesus. So what happened? He met the resurrected Jesus. He met him on a road. And this Jesus said, I am King and Lord. And Paul said, yes, you must be. And I must follow you because I believe now that you are an objective reality. And that has to be our hope. You see, the way to happiness is not through changed circumstances, but it's through a person. Jesus said this in John 16.33, I have told you these things so that in me you might have peace. In me. I'm the end of your peace. It's not in what I can do for you. It's you having me. In this world, you're going to have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. You see, friends, what we need is not a God of our own choosing and a God of our own making that will tell us anything we want Him to tell us, that will serve our whims and our needs, but we need truth. We need tangible truth. We need the person of God Himself to come into our lives Because in that relationship, we can find love and correction. And that is so much of what we need. You see, if your God never corrects you, if your God can never tell you no, you can be sure that He is not your God. He's your idol. I love what... W.H. Auden, the great poet, said he went. Uh, he was an atheist and he became a Christian. And somebody asked him, you know, what gives? I mean, why did you become a Christian? And this is what he said. He said, I believe in Jesus because he fulfills none of my dreams. Love it. He is in every respect the opposite of what he should be if I could have made him in my own image. And then he said this. This is even better. Someone said to him, so what about Muhammad or Buddha? And he wrote, well, none of the others arouse all sides of my being to cry, crucify him. If if your Jesus has never called you to do something that, that caused you to be angry enough to join the crowd and say, crucify him, then you don't know Jesus. Because Jesus doesn't cater to you. Jesus doesn't... Serve your little whims and your desires. Jesus isn't about being your little genie in a bottle that if you just call out enough that He's going to come and He's going to make your dreams true. No, He says your dreams are evil. You've got to have my dreams. Because they are the dreams that will bring you life. Not because I want to punish you, but because I want to bring you life. I love what Paul said in verses 9 through 10. We, we see, um, you know, that before Paul became a Christian, that he was um, eaten up with pride and arrogance, all of his accomplishments. And yet we read in, in these verses, he said, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. 
and His grace toward me is not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Truth and grace. Dear friends, the resurrected Jesus is about truth and grace. The, the, the people that you let tell you the truth are the people that you know love you. And dear friends, that's God. The, the reason that He nudges, that He convicts, that he, he brings an overwhelming sense of need for change, need to move in a different direction, is because He loves you. It is His grace and His mercy poured out to you that is your motive. Why is Paul giving his life away? Because he knows God not only to be a God of truth, but a God of grace and mercy. A God of compassion. How do we know that? Because of Calvary. How do we know that God's intentions for us are good, even though they may feel cruel? Because of Calvary. How do we know that God is not some God that's just going to play chess with our lives to get some type of sick amusement? Because of Calvary. Jesus came and He, he faced our sin. He became our sin And the only reason He would do that is because God so loved the world. Dear friends, having a resurrected Jesus who will tell you the truth and usher you into a life, a relationship of grace and mercy is superior to the message, just do what makes you happy. You see, you weren't made for happiness, you were made for resurrection. Your dreaming and your desires are all too small if all you want is a new car. If all you want is to get married. If all you want is to get well. You were made for so much more than that. You were made for resurrection. You were made for new life. So stop having your weak dreams and your weak hopes and start living Big by saying, I'm going to live a resurrected life. And what is a resurrected life? Secondly, Jesus' resurrection produces life in a certain direction. Paul in Philippians 3 and verses, I think it was 9 and 10, maybe 10 and 11, said, I want to know Christ and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Okay, that's crazy speak. I want to know Christ. Alright, that's good. I want to know the power of the resurrection so I can live an, an abundant life, so I can have wealth, health, prosperity. No. I want to know the power of the resurrection so that I might share in Christ's sufferings and share in His death. What in the world does that mean? It means this, dear friends. Our flesh is alive to self, but the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit who raised Christ Jesus from the dead, who lives in those that believe in Jesus, takes us in the direction of humility, self-denial, and self-sacrifice. And so life feels like death this side of glory. Life is excruciatingly painful. 
I don't want to love somebody who is going to persecute me, who's going to make fun of me, who's going to betray me. I don't want to love, I don't want to lay my life down for people that are ungrateful. I don't want to have to love my enemy and those who spite. I don't want to live that life in my flesh. And yet what Jesus is doing, what the resurrection power of Jesus is doing, is empowering a life of forgiveness and love and self-denial. Making God big in your heart, the ultimate thing, and neighbor and his concerns big as well. You see, this is what the civil rights movement was all about. It was namely about trying to call a church back to the gospel. It was trying to call a people that were taking the resurrection of Jesus and taking the blessings of Jesus and the power afforded to them and hoarding that for self, for one race. And you see, the resurrection gives us so much more. It tells us to use our money for the good of our neighbor. It tells us to use our influence for the good of the neighbor. One of the biggest indictments on the church was when, and I think it was in um, Dr. King's letters from the Birmingham jail, he said, the biggest surprise for me, I just felt as if once we as, as you know, African American Christians got out there on the street, that our white brothers, that our white, the white clergy is really what he said, was going to come too, and they didn't. He said, that was my biggest surprise. Why was he surprised? Because he assumed that they were believing the same gospel. He assumed that they were living by the same reality. Love God and love your neighbors yourself. Do you see it? He was surprised by the selfishness. He was surprised by the, the small view of the church for love and justice. And rightly so. You see, Paul sees his life, the resurrection life, as one of laying his life down. And he did so. He was empowered by the resurrection. He says this in verses 30 through 32. Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. Oh, Paul, show us the abundant life of the resurrection. I die every day. What do I gain, humanly speaking, if I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised. See, it was the resurrection of Christ that empowered this selfless dying life. If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Precisely. You know, this thought that there's virtue in the Christian life. Let's just do some charity. Let's give a little money away. Let, let's take these small steps because that will make my life better and, and, and I'll just be virtuous. No, Paul says you're a fool. If Christ was not raised, then take, get a case of vodka and a bag of weed, go drink it up, smoke it up, and get some loose men and women and live a little bit because this is all you got. I mean, that's the Apostle Paul is saying that. He's saying, you're idiots. You're idiots if you're living some self-denying life. Go fulfill all your pleasures if Christ were not raised. Do you hear it? 
You see, that's what the church was doing. He ends by saying, wake up from your drunken stupor. He wasn't speaking metaphorically. They were literally in drunken stupors. (laughs) And he was saying, wake up. There's something better. Jesus has lived. Jesus has died. Jesus rose to empower a life of selflessness. And not self-righteous selflessness. Not the kind of selflessness where you go out and you do a good deed and you post it on Facebook or you tweet it or you get it on Instagram. It's not a life that is a selfie. But it's a life that you turn your camera toward God. And you're never in the picture. And you're constantly pointing to Him out of love and joy and gratitude. A love what Paul is calling the church to in 1 Corinthians 13, the great love chapter. Love is patient and kind. Not just when I'm being loved with patient and kind. No, love is patient and kind. Even if I'm being mistreated, even if I'm oppressed, even if I'm overlooked, even whatever the even is, it is patient and kind. It is a thing all of itself. That's why it overcomes evil, because it's not controlled by circumstances. It is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful, mama. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but it rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Do you know what he's saying? Are you, in these days with the election in the past, with maybe where our country is, are you hoping all things and believing? Are you an element of encouragement in the world? Are you saying, oh, this is just a hiccup. Oh, but there's going to be a day. Are you the one preaching hope in a time where many feel hopeless? Are you joining in? My, yes, that's right. Let's hate. Let's be bitter. The resurrection raises us to be not just... Oh, what did Ashley say? I love what she said. Butterflies and kisses or I don't know what it was. Butterflies and something. No. It is a substantial, a substantial hope that, hey, this is not the final reality. This isn't it. Oh, there's a reality coming. There's a reality coming. So don't be down. Find hope in Christ. The one who broke the power of sin. The one who broke the power of death. This is life. Be a people of love. That's what a resurrection life is all about. And then thirdly and lastly, Jesus' resurrection is certain hope. My mother, stepfather were here in the first service and I couldn't say what was really on my mind. Take that in a little bit, I guess. This past June... stood at the I stood at the deathbed of my dad 
And man, I didn't plan on this. My dad died not hoping in Christ. And I feared that day. I feared it for years. But as I stood there, as I sat in the room alone with him while he was dead, all I could think about was that my children will not see me as I'm seeing Him. Because there is literal, tangible, real hope in the resurrection of Jesus. And if Christ was not raised, we are idiots for being here this morning. But if Christ was raised, can you see the foolishness of not receiving Him as your Lord and Savior? He conquered death for you. You see, to see someone in the deathbed, the doctors are gone. They've moved on to other patients. The nurses are preparing the body for the family. But nobody's holding out hope because hope is gone. But not with Jesus. You see, my family will be able to stand there and not glory in the good life I lived. Oh my goodness, they know the real Richard. They know the real dad. But they will glory in this Christ who lived, who died, who rose for me, a sinner like me. And they can say, this is not the end. And we're not going to let this define us. Oh, if Christ is raised, we have hope, dear friends. If He wasn't, we have no hope. Because Jesus went in the tomb. And He told death and sin, He said, take your best shot. And they did. And like a fighter who hits the ground. Okay, take your best shot. I'm out. But I'm not down. You see, Jesus came exploding into the world. And He did so with resurrection life. I love this. I love it. I love the the argument for the resurrection. Here's the powerful argument of the resurrection. If we go to Matthew 28, it was our call to worship, what do we see? He appeared first to Mary Magdalene and the other Mary. Are you kidding me? If I rise from the dead, it is going to go viral. Alright? We're talking YouTube. We're talking every means possible. Jesus appeared... You think women are oppressed and and overlooked and... Man, they had no social... They were nothing but to Jesus. Women, you should read that and go, Hallelujah, what a Savior. 
He appeared, yes, He appeared to Mary Magdalene and to Mary. Why? Because at the very essence of the resurrection life is not a noisy gong and clanging symbol, but the humility of, ladies, you don't even recognize me, but it's me. Wow. Then He appeared to Cephas, and then He appeared to the twelve, and then He appeared to James, and then He appeared to the five hundred at one time. Only five hundred? Really? That's going to change the world? Yeah, well, it has. But why did Jesus rise? He rose so that His church could rise. That we could rise in humility. That we could rise up and die. Because this is not our reality. This is not our our future. Our future is glory. Our future is a new heaven and a new earth. It is a resurrected body that is better than the bodies we have now. It is eating and drinking with the Savior. You like to eat and drink, you will do it in glory. But that won't be the greatest thing. You will do it with Jesus, and He will be the greatest thing. You will have relationship of love like you've never experienced. You see, church, this empowers a life of death that the world might know that there really is life. The number one reason people say they don't want to go to church and they don't want to be around Christians is because of our what? Hypocrisy. So get the resurrected life. Get the resurrected Jesus and die. May your whole life go in the direction of death. That people may look and see, man, those people don't need anything that we need to really be happy. We don't understand this community. Why are they dying for us? Why are they giving to us? How do we solve the issues of Memphis? The church dies through the life of the resurrected Jesus. When a child dies, when it, and that's who's dying, by the way. When our children get shot, we show up and we say no more. We begin to give our lives in the direction of serving in the direction of loving. If people don't have families, if children don't have families, we say the doors of our homes are open and our tables are open. We go on and on and on. We say, show us your needs and we go to it. Why? Because we have resurrection power. So church, may we live the resurrection power. Do you know that kind of hope? Is this your hope that you're embracing? I love what R.P. said earlier, he said, I thought I was a Christian, but I realized I wasn't a Christian. Why? Because his life was not lining up. You see, Christianity is not just some decision and profession and then, or confession and then go. No, it is a life lived for God and lived in his power. Do you have that life this morning? Oh, it's available. And his name is Jesus. Would you come to Him? Would you give your life to Him? Would you cry out to Him as Ashley talked about? Would you get on your knees and cry out to the Savior and say, I want this kind of life. I'm sick of living in the prison of self and I want to live for the glory of God. Would you give yourself to this resurrected Jesus that we might have hope that the world might know that Jesus is risen. Lord Jesus, we praise you this morning that you are risen. We thank you that death does not have the final victory. We thank you that sin does not have the final word. But, O God, you have sent your Son, Lord Jesus. You lived, you died, you rose, that we might have hope eternal. Help us, O God. Help us to live a resurrected life 
which is a life of love and service, a life laid down for our neighbor, a life wide open to the needs of those around us. Oh God, make us better through the resurrected Jesus. We pray in His name. Amen.